right, good morning. Good morning. It's been a beautiful just morning here in the house of the Lord. It's a great day. This is the day the Lord's made. We're rejoicing and being glad in it. Um, I see two. And we've got some special guests in the house. Good morning. So I know that's a big part of the Beale family here to celebrate Ann Beale's 98th birthday. So happy birthday and welcome to uh, those who've come to celebrate with you. Great things happening. Great things. This morning, I'm going to start the way I was taught never to start. You never start just by giving the title of whatever it is you're going to talk about. But this morning, God is binary. That's the title of my sermon today. And it's likely going to be a series, a series to follow. Now, I'm guessing what some of you might be thinking by this title. Uh, some here, maybe some who are listening online. And I want to say from the outset, it's a title. It's just a title. And you know, it's meant to be a little bit provocative. My intention is to provoke some thought, some thinking, I, 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 and maybe even some questions. It'd be great if there'd be some questions. And even better, if it just pushes some right into the Word of God. Right into the Word of God to say, what, what is, is this true? Could it be? Now, listen, it's a title. It's a title. It's not, I really don't want you to take it exactly literally. And I'll give you a little bit of explanation about that. You know, first, what is binary? What is binary? If you say the word binary today, I'll tell you, it seems instantly, instantly. Uh, people think it's a reference to sex and to gender and, and that's because of the modern culture. The modern culture that we live in, it insists that sex and gender, they're not binary forms. Notwithstanding that God created male and female, notwithstanding that Jesus reiterated that creation a mandate when speaking about marriage, Jesus said, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, that's a man and a woman, and be united with his wife, notwithstanding biology, which I learned in ninth grade. I think it's called settled science, XX and XY chromosomes. But modern culture says that's nonsense, and they do. Modern culture says this. The gender binary describes the inaccurate concept that gender is categorized into only two distinct forms, that is, man and woman. Many gender expansive identities exist either between or outside of this binary, such as gender fluid, gender queer, non-binary, or agender. Now, I found that published by the National Cancer Institute. That, to me, it's like a succinct definition, I guess, of the cultural, uh, the cultural way. But it was from this medical site, which really kind of just cramped my whole comprehension. I couldn't really figure it out. Uh, so, so it's, you know, binary nowadays, it's, it's often about discussions along these lines, sex and gender. But to me, to me, binary, that was a number system. 
It was a number system called base two. You know, the binary number system, there's only two numbers. It's zero and one. We're all familiar with base 10. It's what we learn as kids. We have math class and all of that. The numbers are zero through nine. We have 10 digits. And, you know, it helps us to categorize things, weigh things, count things, all of that. The binary system is just zero and one. Only two numbers, two options. When I was in college and I studied mathematics and calculus and computer programming, I, I learned about this thing called the binary system. And I learned that it was the foundation to uh, computer processing. I learned a little bit about uh, silicon semiconductors and you know the whole electronic thing. It just wasn't my, it wasn't my cup of tea. It, it, it did really stretch my comprehension. But I had to take a few of those classes and I learned that this, you know, the silicon chip was the, the, the basis for uh, foundational computer processing because this thing, this thing called a semiconductor, it was ideal for these mathematical or logical operations because this piece of silicon could be etched with millions, even billions of circuits that were in simplest forms is gateways. Gateways, open or closed. The circuit is all these open or closed, open or closed, on, off, true, false, binary, one or the other. And that's what a computer program ultimately boils down to is just this string of ones and zeros. And, and I learned that before personal computers were even part of everyday life. When I was in school, I would sit at a, a teletype terminal. I don't know if anybody even knows what that is. And, and I would put in a computer program, and I'd have to get up and leave that building and go over to another building and pick up a, a stack of punch cards. And then I had to go to another place and give them to a guy who would feed them to a computer, which I never even saw. And then I'd go back to my teletype machine after all this legwork, and then sit there and hope and pray, Lord, did I do it right? And wait and then see what it would spit out. And if there was a mistake, I'd have to go debug it and start the whole thing and get all these punch cards. And man, it, it, it feels like it was like a, a century ago. And it, and it was, I was in the last century. I mean, I'm dating myself. It's, uh, you know, but that computer that I never saw it, it was running on this, this binary concept. And that's just exactly like computers run today. And, and yet it seems like what I, I learned all about this binary system, it's all archaic now. It's totally archaic. Uh, because now it seems to be, a, you say the word, it's about gender and non-binary. And, uh, so what does it mean then when I say God is binary? Am I equating him then to you know, a man and gender and all that. And I'll just say, no. God is not a man. And his word declares that, says that. Uh, the prophet Balaam tried to, he was hired to uh, bring a word, and he said, I can't do it. I have to listen to exactly what God tells me. What does the Lord tell me? In Numbers uh, chapter 23, verse 19, here's one of the, here's one of the things that Balaam heard, he received, God is not a human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. God's not, he's above us, he's beyond us. Yet, the amazing thing, and what we sung about, and, and 
we've talked about today and we've heard a, a word of encouragement. Jesus, Jesus came to earth to be a man. He became one of us. And that's just amazing. It's wonderful that God would choose to become one of us. And from the early pages of Scripture, we, we know God is not a man, even yet he would become a man. And the promise is there. The promise is there from as early as Genesis chapter 3, where the tempter, the great serpent, Satan, he was told, once coming to crush your head, the offspring of a woman. There was this promise that there'd be a Savior, a Messiah, that would be, as a human, to crush this, the, the head of Satan, to relieve humankind from the burden of the penalty of sin. And then from that portion of Scripture, the earliest pages, Genesis chapter 3, and throughout the whole Old Testament, Pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. I'll give you just one example of many, many that are their allusions or their direct promises of a Savior. Psalm 110, verse number one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, Jesus, who is the promised one. Jesus, who is the Messiah, Savior, when he walked this earth, he pointed to the experts of the religion, and he asked them, whose son is the Messiah? Well, they said, Messiah is the son of King David. And Jesus replied, really? And what did he do? He quoted Psalm 110, verse number one. How is it, he asked, how is it that King David could say, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? He said, how is he David's son if David calls him Lord? Now the experts had no answer. They were silenced. As a matter of fact, the word of God says from that point on, they were afraid to even ask Jesus anything because of what he said there. See, they had no answer. They had no answer. They didn't understand that Jesus is the son of God and fully human, son of man in the line of King David. He's holy God, holy man. And it was Jesus who said to the Samaritan woman at, at, at the well, Jacob's well, God is spirit. God is spirit. So God is not a man. God is spirit. He chose from the foundation of the world to become a man, to participate in creation, to experience the pains and the joys of life and all of it. But, you know, God is not, he's not binary then in the sense of human binary forms. Uh, he created it though. God created the binary form of man and woman, male and female. And Yet the Bible presents many, many other examples of what I'll call binary pairs beyond this thing called uh, man and woman, beyond male and female. God, uh, God presents these images in the word of God, good and evil, heaven and hell, truth and false, humility and pride, wisdom and foolishness, 
faith and works, spirit and flesh, love and hate, mercy and justice. The temporary, the temporal, and the internal, light and dark, life and death. I mean, these are binary pairs that are really powerful. They're impactful. They're presented in God's word. In the Bible, God's relationship to all of these various binary parts, it's often depicted in his terms, the terms of his sovereignty and his authority over all of it. In God's position as creator and the sustainer and keeper of all things he established and he defined all these all these forms, these binary forms, these zeros and ones, if you will, like heaven and hell and light and dark. And, and ultimately, God's demonstrating his power and his righteousness and, and the consequences that result from decisions that we make in relation to him. So it's in this sense, in this sense that I say God is binary and in this sense that he presents in his word all of these pairs and this morning I want to focus on one of these pairs now you might think well male and female is a great place to start but it's that'll come in a few weeks I want to start with a binary pair uh, of humility and pride because these are really in the first pages of scripture I mentioned Genesis chapter 3 there with uh, the serpent the tempter and this is a great scene of humility and pride. This very first book of the Bible, the earliest pages, they clash together, pride and humility. And I want to talk about pride first and define it. Pride, because pride can be positive. Pride, we can have a positive sense of pride. We can uh, have this positive sense where it has to do with honor and respect, and we could be proud of someone's accomplishments. We could be proud of something maybe we've done, our work or our children or our parents. We can be proud of certain things, and that's a positive thing. But pride can also have this negative connotation, right? Being conceited, arrogant, an exaggerated sense of self-esteem, egotistical, we might say, self-centered. And th this, is, this is a negative connotation of pride. It's the pride I'm talking about this morning. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the Greek myth of Narcissus. Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection. He looked into this pool of uh, still water. This is the story of Narcissus. He fell in love with himself, and he stayed there. Enthralled by his own reflection till he perished. And we, we have a culture that, that just presses us to be like that, to be like Narcissus, to be narcissistic. And it's, it, it's all about the you know, social media that just pushes us to display everything about ourselves, post everything about ourselves, to show off images, accomplishments, even our most private thoughts, some, some things that were, at one time, they were the most private thought that you might write down on a card and you'd give it for one person. Now that's just published for everyone to see. And, and then what? Then what? After putting out these kinds of things, then what? Then it's the weight. The weight. How many are going to like it? How many are going to heart it? How many are going to thumbs up it or smile at it or whatever? 
Did you hear the story? I wonder, did you hear the news story a couple of weeks ago here in Warren, right here in Warren, Michigan? A school bus. Uh, the school bus driver fell asleep and this seventh grader on the school bus, he jumped up and he stopped this runaway bus. There was like 66 kids on the bus and he was in row five. He jumped up and he went over and he stopped the bus because his bus driver had passed out. Now his, his dad had a great sense of pride that was a good, in a good sense. And the, the, the boy, I read an article, and this young seventh grader, he, he knew what to do, he said, because he watched the bus driver every day. He knew how that, how that bus was to be stopped. But his dad, said, his dad said this, he doesn't have a cell phone. So he takes in his surroundings. He observes things. He saw what was happening because, you know, he wasn't absorbed by a device. And you know. The device can absorb us with games and all that kind of stuff, but it can also be this self-absorption. We can just be so self-absorbed. And, you know, that's pride. That's pride being self-absorbed. And it was the sin of Lucifer. He was so self-absorbed. He put himself, not, not only above others, but he put himself above God. Isaiah chapter 14 it tells us, it tells us about the pride, the arrogance of Lucifer. Isaiah 14 says, you said in my heart, now this, you said in your heart, this is, this is pointing toward Lucifer. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will make myself like the most high. This was the arrogance of Lucifer. And then, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, the depths of the pit. Well, God doesn't put up with, with this pride. Ezekiel chapter 28, it's also very instructive about Lucifer. Now, this is a prophecy to the king of Tyre, but he is, he, he is the image of Satan himself. And the prophet says this, Ezekiel 28, verses 13, and I'll give you verse 17. You were in Eden, the garden of God. That's, that's pointing to the serpent. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Now, the verses go on just to extol the, the beauty of this, uh, of this creation of God. And then verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Again, God doesn't, he doesn't put up with it. And Lucifer's fall from grace, which was a result of his prideful desire for self-exaltation, to put himself not only above others, but absolutely above the most high God. His fall serves as just this vivid image for us uh, about the perils of pride. It's, it's this great illustration. And it's a warning. It's a warning that pride is driven by, by a belief in oneself and, and your own self-sufficiency. 
This is, this is the warning. Now, how might pride be exhibited then in, in life? How might, and I've already I've alluded to that already, right? This idea that we're in the social media age. Some individuals, they've just developed this unhealthy desire, this unhealthy desire for validation, for constant, constant accumulation of, of likes and comments and shares and all this about their posts. And it's kind of an addiction. It's an addiction to external affirmation. And it can become a preoccupation. And I think we've probably experienced it with, with someone. And maybe if we're honest, maybe even ourself, it's this preoccupation with self-image and a constant need uh, for approval. It's kind of a distorted self of, a sense of self-worth. And, and that's just one aspect. That's one aspect of this idea of pride in life. You know, also, we live, we live today in a, in a culture of excess. We have so much, we have more than we can, we can do with. We have this culture that it values material possessions and social standing and uh, equates them all with success. You know, you're successful if you have this, if you have that, if you're at this place in, in your work. And that, that fosters this pride based on, on one's you know, material standing, material wealth. It can lead to just pursuit of Promotion, got to get that next promotion at work. It, it's a pursuit of material accumulation possessions. It's conspicuous consumption. Look at what I have. And it's a focus on the external, these external markers of success rather than what's internal, what, what's important to the Lord. And, and then there are these uh, there's academic circles. There's certain academic and intellectual uh, circles where pride can, can come and people can be elevated uh, because of their perceived intellectual prowess and superiority and, uh, that you know, they believe, oh, I'm, I have this exclusive knowledge. I, I know more than someone else. And basically it's just an I'm smarter than you attitude. It, what is that? It leads to elitism. It leads to condescension, uh, condescension of, uh, towards others. Lifting oneself up, I, I am smarter than you. It can lead to a lack of openness to even hear someone else because, hey, I know it all. Uh, you know, what else? I saw, an, I saw a story yesterday. It was a big brawl at uh, Dodger Stadium. Uh, sports people fighting. Big surprise, right? Uh, what, what started the fracas, I don't know. But this is not uncommon. You know, one, one group of fans, my team's better than your team. No, my team's better than yours. Oh, well, I'll tell you, I'll show you, right? And they get aggressive. They get, you know, rivalries build. You know, I'm so proud of my team. My team's the greatest. And people come to blows. Guy got knocked out cold. I, for what? My team's better than yours? You know, what about just a brawl, a fight between two people? You know, a disagreement, dissension, some kind of conflict. You know, both say, I'm right. And that's, that's another part of just the time we live in. Our, uh, the society tells us, you know, you're right. We kind of live in this you're right culture. You know, be self-confident. 
You can go to seminars. You can pay good money to learn to be self-confident, to assert yourself. Don't be a pushover. You're right. You know, you, you are right. See, and pride leaves no room for wrong. It's pride, I'm, pride leaves no room for admitting, eh, maybe I just didn't get it right. And there can be religious or spiritual pride. No, I'm more spiritual than others. Why? Well, I pray more. How much do you pray? I pray more than you. Now, I'm certainly more devoted. You know, I do my devotion every morning, every morning. And I suffer more for the Lord. Let me tell you, I suffer more than you, than the, for, for the Lord. So I know God's going to bless me more. Look at what I've done for God. You know, remember, remember Peter's pride. Jesus talked about he's going to go to the cross. He is going to be arrested. And Peter said, Lord, if all fall away on account of you, I never will. You know what Jesus said? You're going to deny me three times, Peter, before the rooster crows. And you know what Peter did? He didn't think, think about that for a minute. Man, maybe he's right. No, he doubled down. Peter doubled down. Lord, it, I, I, even if I got to die with you, I will never disown you. Hmm. We know the rest of the story. Now, the, these are attitudes of spiritual superiority. And you know, Jesus, he had things to say. Uh, the woman caught in adultery, you know, he, he said, go and sin no more. He was very kind to, to people who were stuck in their sinful ways but to the religious elite, to those who were superior uh, religiously and spiritually, Jesus had his harshest, harshest comments. Whoa, woe unto you. Read Matthew chapter 24 or 23 and uh, all the woes, the woe sayings, the woe sayings of Jesus uh, because of the pride. And what is then the antithesis, the antidote to pride. It's humility. It's humility. This is, uh, as I said, it's a, it's a binary pair, pride and humility. Humility, humility is the, the opposite. It's, it's marked by a sincere recognition uh, of your limitations, of one's own limitations and reliance, and reliance on God. We have to admit that. We have to come to it. We have to say, God, I need you. And humility involves valuing others above ourselves. Now, life doesn't just, it's not all about us. The sun does not rotate around me as much as I like to think that sometimes. Humility involves valuing others above ourselves, submitting to God's authority. Back in the early 5th century, Augustine, the bishop of uh, uh, the North African city of Hippo, he wrote this, and it's, it's just spot on. Augustine wrote, the origin of all sin is pride. When a doctor diagnoses some illness, he may care for the symptoms brought on by some cause without caring for that cause. For a while, the sickness appears to be healed. But since the cause remains, the sickness soon reasserts itself. Why does wickedness abound? Because of pride. Treat the pride and there will be no wickedness. And that is so true. So how might, how might we treat pride if it's something that's 
you know, something that's impacted us from you know, the examples that I presented or even others. How could we treat it? How can we treat the cause? And I'd say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And I, I'm going to give you one line. Jesus personified and he embodied humility. So let's look to him. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus having a conversation with the experts, the, uh, the religious leaders, he said this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now that one line of Christ, it it encapsulates the heart of humility. It just really cuts to the chase. Not my will. This is the words of Jesus. That's the heart of humility. The heart of humility is not my will. Pride says my will. Pride says my way. Pride self-seeking, it's self-absorbed, it's self-righteous. Humility sets that aside. Humility sets aside its own will, its own wants, its own desires. Humility, in a word, is selfless. The New Testament letter to the church in the city of Philippi describes the coming of Jesus to earth. The Apostle Paul wrote just a wonderful, wonderful depiction of it. He wrote about how Jesus humbled himself. This was a humble act. He humbled himself. He gave up the glory of heaven. That's, just think about that for a minute. If you were in heaven, heaven was your home. Jesus gave it up. He gave up the glory of heaven to become a man, to experience life here on earth. As I had already said, the joys and the sorrows, Jesus humbled himself, and he came in the most humble way, born in a stable. He embodied humility. He exemplifies humility. He's the master. Jesus is the master of humility. So if we want to treat pride, we look to him. We look to him as the model and the way and the treatment for pride. What is his will? His will when it comes to an area of pride in life that we might be dealing with. Now, last week, we were encouraged to set aside distractions. We heard a great message. Set aside distractions and take time at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, who said, I've I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Sit at his feet and listen. Are we listening? What What is his will when it comes Maybe when it comes to more posts uh, on our social media feed, when it comes to more posts about me, what's his will? Well, I like the way that John the Baptist put it. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, he said, he must become greater. Pointing at Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, there's a humble attitude. Perhaps it's time to put out some posts about Jesus. 
What's his will? What is his will when our, when our focus is on chasing promotions or life, uh, uh, life markers of success like money and uh, wealth and all that it brings? Jesus told a rich young man, sell everything you have. Give to the poor, follow me. Jesus met a corrupt tax collector called Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus said, I, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Jesus told him, salvation's come to your home. So is it all? Is it half? You know, what is it? Jesus, really, he's not, he's not advocating a formula here, but a heart, a heart of humility, not chasing all this junk of the world, but following him, following his ways of humility. What's his will? What's his will when we're smarter than others? When we fight and we're right, no matter what. Here's what the apostle wrote to that church in Philippi. Philippians chapter two, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Powerful words. And what follows then is this beautiful description of the humility of Jesus, giving up heaven and coming to earth. And then the apostle would write, have that mindset, have that attitude. The humility, the humbleness of Christ. Model his, hum his humility. And, and what's the model? Not my will. Not my will. So when it comes to all those things, not my will. And what about when it just comes to plain old sin? Sin, you know. You know what's wrong. Lying and cheating and uh, gossiping and adultery and por pornography and stealing and harboring a grudge against someone. It, all of these things, just plain old sin. We know it's wrong. Sin that Augustine said hundreds of years ago, the root is pride. What does is, what is the proud one say? Not my will, or not, not his will, my will. My will, the proud says my will. I just keep doing it my way. You know, and the proud says, you got sin, I don't. The proud sees the sin in others. The proud sees the speck in the other's eye, even though there's a big old beam in the proud one's eye. But a sincere, a sincere follower of Jesus, they're ready to admit the sin. They're ready to own it. They're ready to say, ah, it's, yes, it's, uh, you're right, I did it. It's, it's, it's wrong. They're ready to admit the wrong. They're ready to cast the first stone at themselves. No, the proud's gonna pick up the stone. The humble, they're gonna own it. And God's word has, it, it has a simple, simple word for that, and the word is repentance. Repentance. When it comes to this binary pair pride and humility, God's word offers a transformative remedy for the pride to become Christ-like, 
to have Christ-like humility through repentance and surrender. Repentance involves just owning it, confessing it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's me. Rather than pointing at someone else, rather than holding it above someone else, rather than trying to hold it above God. Repentance involves confessing the sinful nature of pride and, and just turning to Jesus, turning to Jesus, seeking forgiveness, asking for a renewed heart, and taking action, then taking action. Because we can come and we can repent, but then it's to take action. Where we, we say what John the Baptist says, more of you, Jesus, more of you, less of me. Jesus becomes greater then. And fulfillment doesn't come from what we do for him. No, it comes from what he has done for us and what he's doing for us. He has given his life. He's given his life. He's given us eternal life because he gave up his own. His own. Humbled himself, Paul wrote, even to the point of death, death on a cross. He gave his life in total humiliation. So a follower of Christ then sets aside their own wants, their own desires, and does nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, vain glory, just valuing others above themselves and living this out. Not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. If we can, if we can get in that John 638 attitude, not my will, but yours, then we can, we'll be living as the humble and not the proud. Now, I don't know if you need it today. I don't know if you need a little John 638 prayer, but I do. I want to pray. Let's pray. Let's just stand and pray. And, you know, last week we were encouraged just to listen, just to take a minute to listen. Maybe that would be a good idea today, too, just to take a minute right now, just, you know, Lord, look inside our hearts. Help us. Is there some vainglory? Is there something we're doing? Or are we doing any of these things we've talked about or just plain old sin and I'm not even going to own it, taking this prideful attitude, I do no wrong? Let's just take a minute to, you know, to, to, to look inside. I don't want to call you out or say, come to an altar and put it down. I know this, that's, that's a hard thing. Just get before the Lord right now. And if you need to own it, own it. If you need to confess it, confess it. Let's just take a minute to do that. And now let's just pray. We're encouraged earlier to ask, seek, knock. Maybe we need to ask about something we've been struggling with. An area of pride we need to put down and we need to ask and we need to seek and we need to knock like, Lord, help us with that. And let's do that because God, he is gracious and he will help Father. Thank you for this example Thank you for this example, this, 
this pair, this opposite, pride and humility, and you've shown us in your word. You showed us in your word the, the danger, the poison of pride and the humility of Jesus. The, the, the cure, and God help us. We, we just humbly ask you, Lord, to help us. If, if there's something that we've been dealing with, and we know it, we know it, God. Deep in our hearts, we know. Be it something that we're, we're harboring a, a sin, we're hiding a sin, or, or it's an issue with, an, with work or school or someone or whatever it is, God. Whatever it is, we know it. And if we need help there, God, to just give it up, to admit it, to release it, to not, to not think we're, we're right or better. Oh, God, we just are, are asking for you to help us and to deal with that. That we would have the humility of Jesus who said, not my will, not our will, God, not our will, not our way, not our want, not our desire to to, to have something, to be right, to shine the light on ourselves. Lord, whatever it is, we ask for your grace and we ask for your help to put it aside, God, because you're good and we trust you and we can put it into your hands and we can walk out of here free of that, free of that thing that was holding us down and God, we just release it to you. And we ask for your grace and your forgiveness. And God, if we truly need to repent in our heart, Lord, Lord, lead us in that way. Lead us in that way. Father, I pray that I and everyone in this room would have that attitude of John who said, let him become more and me become less. Let us have that attitude of Jesus who said, not my will, but the one, the will of the one who sent me. Help us. Help us, Father, to do your will and not our own. God, we just commit it to you and we ask this blessing. Help us leave here on a high note knowing we left it behind. We left it behind with you. We leave here greater uh, than when we came in because of you, not because of us. Thank you for that, Lord. And help us, God, to go out and brag about you and talk about you and, and just exemplify and extol Jesus. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you. Grant it, we pray. Bless us as we go. Keep us, watch over us. Bring us back again to worship you and praise your name. We ask it, Father, in, that, in the name above all names, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, amen, amen.